Wednesday, June 30th, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 349. I write my own sermons. My name is Caleb Haig. <laughs> I read Spurgeon sermons. I'm Rob Van Hoff. Do you know what's going on with the SBC right now? What's up, Holmes? No. So I got to say, this is this has probably been my way too much of my main source of entertainment for the past, I don't know how many works, weeks. First of all, so for those who are not associated or know anything about, and I am not associated with the SBC, by the way, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention had their, their uh, annual meeting, and uh, in it, J.D. Greer was the sitting president. They elected a new president, and there was a huge hubbub over what was going to happen. There was four guys up for uh, the new presidency, and the president doesn't really of the SBC doesn't really have a ton of uh, of power, except the uh, SBC president elects all of the different offices, and so the SBC president can essentially sway the direction of the SBC. Now, for those who don't know, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest. Uh, Baptist convention, and I think it's the largest evangelical uh, denomination in the world today. I think they boast something outrageous, like 24 million members or something like that. It's it's insane. Anyway, so uh, they are also known as the last holdout of conservative evangelicalism. Well, in the uh, in the elections of their new presidency. Uh, there were people. There were two guys who were very conservative, and there then there were guys who were leaning more liberal. And Ed Litton is the mo, was the most liberal guy up for the presidency, and he won. And this was like the huge hubbub. Okay, well, as any political scandal should rightly go, after Litton was elected as president of the SBC, it comes out that he has actually plagiarized a sermon. And he plagiarized a sermon from the former president, J.D. Greer. And there's been some great editorial work done in video editing uh, to show the, the side-by-side of these guys, you know. Uh, so it's not word, like it's... Like word for word in... It's like in Joe Naples. Biden. It's like from the <laughs> yeah, 80s. It's, it, it's, yeah. it's insane. So this, this comes out, right? And all of a sudden... Uh, you know, J.D. Greer comes out with a statement and says, oh, yeah, he asked me if he could use that, you know, that sermon. And I said, yeah, not a problem. And then Litton comes out and says, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. No big deal. Well, then the next day, Litton's uh, church YouTube channel scrubs 143 videos, 143 sermons of his. And this gets the attention not just of the SBC, but of the New York Times and of, uh, I mean, it it popped off, man. And Twitter was just absolutely ablaze. Why uh, did they? So they obviously found. I mean, George, uh, Justin Peters did. Uh, uh, no, George, Justin. Yeah, Justin Peters did a great video on this. It's a hundred. Uh, it's an hour and thirty six minutes. So. I mean, if you're going to actually sit down and, and take some time, sit down and take the time. Justin Peters has done uh, really good work on this. Um, and it took him days to put it all together. Here's the thing is that there are people in the Southern Baptist Convention who are not, uh, not going to let this kind of thing go lightly. All those videos that were scrubbed, people have at least the majority of them. And people are already doing work to show but how. But he is presently still the elect 
He's still the president of the SBC. Now, now it's been a couple of weeks since he was elected. And the thing is, is like now. And these are, videos were pulled subsequent to his election. Just yes, like yes. In now the last here's week the, OK, uh, now here's the, here's the real scandal in my mind. Did they post a note? We are pulling these videos for ABC oh, no, reasons. No, no, no. Nothing. Just no. just sweep it under the rug. Kind yeah, of thing. That's right. Afterwards, they posted a note saying, oh, yeah, we didn't want uh, our, the new president to be maligned people to search through his sermons to, to search for stuff. First of all, if you are a servant of the Most High, your sermons should be good enough that anyone can go through them and look for for error, number one. Well, and there's and there's no problem with citing another pastor at all. There is a difference a between there is a difference between citing and plagiarism. And this exactly. is, is clear so plagiarism. This is oh, and it sounds like Greer it's like love covers up a transgression. Well, like here, Greer was saying, yeah, he asked me, I'm okay with it. Yeah, it's all po- as politics. As a way of... It's politics. Of, but oh. here's here's the thing, is that uh, it's brought up some interesting conversations with me and other people. Initially, I was saying, yeah, okay, well, you know, as faithful servants of the of the Most High, who what is the goal of trying to handle the scriptures for a community? And the answer is, the goal is to try to expound on the scriptures, give the audience the true understanding and meaning of the scriptures, and give them the gospel. This is the this is the goal of a pastor, and so and a preacher. And so, as a preacher, if somebody else wants to use my material, should I let them? And the answer is, yeah, sure, why not? At the same time, now now that was the initial take that I was I was taking. Okay, so so is plagiarism necessarily a bad thing? Well, obviously, plagiarism would be about, uh, like uh, on the level of stealing. Because if you're not citing sources, then you're stealing somebody else's material. That's theft. Right. That's, that's a good point. But at the same time, like, okay, should a pastor always write his own sermons is kind of one of the questions that's come up. And I believe that uh, it is, if you have gotten into ministry, and part of that ministry is preaching on Sundays— You've done that because you think that the Lord has given you the the ability to handle the scriptures and to give your thoughts on it so that people will hear the, the gospel through you. If all you're going to do is get up and preach somebody else's sermon, then why not just let them read the other person's or have somebody else do it? It doesn't make any sense. In other words, it's almost denying the call that the Lord has given you. That's number one. Number two, the biggest problem that I have is not necessarily, although I think the plagiarism is a bad thing, the biggest problem is not the plagiarism. The biggest problem is the heresy that was in J.D. Greer's original sermon, which was then restated by Lytton. And what these guys, oh, are, what these guys, okay, are, so this is a new facet now. The, what these guys are doing is they're walking down the. I'm actually going to be writing quite a uh, bit on this because I see this happening in the in the Torah movement as well. I think that uh, some of the teachers in the Hebrew roots and the uh, and the Messianic movement are going down this exact same path. With that said. Greer says in his original uh, in his original sermon that, uh, and he's talking about greed. Actually, it's on homosexuality in uh, in Romans one is is this is what the sermon's on. And Greer says that God whispers about sexual sin in the Bible, but he shouts about greed. To me, this shows the wokeism and the uh, the social justice. So say that again. He, he whispers, whispers about, and if you go on Twitter right now. Every talking about God whispering, and that's like they're making fun of Greer and Lytton on this. 
Um, like, Yeshua, like Yeshua himself saying, a wicked just, and adulterous generation. See, oh, we, you and I, uh, abomination, it's an abomination. Like they, Basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to so soften. So, okay, go ahead. They're, trying, trying, to so, to they're trying to soften the blow of homosexual sin. They're trying to say that if you have been greedy or if you have been, uh, you know, anything that has to do with money is more egregious than than homosexual sin. And the reason that they're doing this is because ultimately, I think that the SBC is is walking down the path towards liberal uh, theology of trying to allow homosexuals into not only into the churches, but also into. Uh, and when I say into the churches, I mean as full fledged members of the Baptist Convention. And then also, they're. Tr- I think it, this will lead to homosexuals in in uh, in ministry, in eldership and pastorates, uh, which I think is is a much bigger issue than than ripping off a sermon. Although I think that's a big issue as well. But the, but the fact of the matter is is that these guys are walking down the liberal ro- road of of uh, liberal Christianity. So this is a major problem now. With that said, there are holdouts for sure. In fact, the SBC right now is split. I mean, this is going to, I see probably in the future, I'm not a prophet, I'm not foreseeing this, but I believe that what we are heading towards when looking at the SBC, once again, I am not part of the SBC, but what I see happening in the SBC, and I think this actually affects uh, conservative Christians and conservative believers all around. I, I think it actually will affect all of us uh, just because of the, the huge mass of people that are in the Southern Baptist Convention. With that said, I, I see a split coming. I see a major split coming. There is, uh, because I think that I think that it's split probably about 50-50. If you look at the, uh, at the way that the SBC voted, there were 16,000 representatives uh, at the Southern Baptist Convention. They were split almost 50-50 between the most conservative and the most liberal, Lytton won out by, I think it was 53%, voted for Lytton. So uh, it's that's pretty insane, man. And the interesting thing is that I see this already happening. I don't think people realize within the Torah movement, I don't think people realize that some of the teachers in the current Torah movement today have already, already walked down this path of liberal uh, scholarship. They are already subscribing to this. And so I have a whole series that is planned that I'm going to be, I'm going to start writing here um, on growing the Messiah uh, for in, in regard to this in the, in the Torah movement and uh, how I, I see this as, as possibly one of the slopes that uh, if the Torah movement walks down this, then they will be obliterated because it doesn't, it doesn't align well with, with anything Torah. Um, so, all right, that's uh that's our, our look into the Southern Baptist convention. For the day, um, let's do this. Two five three four six five thirty two zero five. It's two five three four six five thirty two zero five. It's a message machine. It is not us. If you call it, you don't get to be on air. You don't get to talk to us. Just leave a message, and you can tell us how much you hate us, love us, uh, agree with us, disagree with us. It doesn't matter. Messiah matters. Wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call two five three four six five. Uh, you can also shoot us an email, chegg at torahresource.com. It's C-H-E-G-G at torahresource.com. And go to Torah Resource for all sorts of free articles. And uh, also, if you'd like to hear a backlog of any of our shows, all the way back to season one when we were called something else, you can do so by going to messiahmatters.com. Okay. Last but not least, don't forget we to need, subscribe. Uh, what, what, we need Harry Shearer to do that. To do some, 
listen to the Robert Caleb show. Da, 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 yeah, you know, all right. Or formerly known as now yes, Messiah. Ex- exactly. All right. I wonder if there's like, can you pay a hundred bucks and have him like say something, <laughs> you know? Oh man. Good question. <laughs> okay. Let's go to our, uh, let's go to our show. We notes. ain't got it. It ain't holy. <laughs> No doubt. Do you have that? Do I have that? Let's see here. I think I do have that. Um, Catholic is best. Hmm. Oh, sponsored by. Yeah, I do. Sponsored by this religious supply where they say, if we don't got it, it It ain't ain't holy. Okay. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Okay. So this is a comment on. So last week we talked about predestination (laughs) in regards to uh, an age of accountability. By the way, we had so many comments on this on this. uh, And I don't know what's happening with our comments. I left a bunch of comments and for some reason they were deleted by YouTube and I don't know why. We've had a on new your m- own on our own video. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, um, one of the comments. So wow. a lot of people have commented and says said yes. There's an age of accountability, and most people say it's twelve or thirteen. And then this one guy posted all these verses from Yeshua going to the temple when he was twelve, and I was like, that doesn't prove anything. Uh, there's, you know, you're this is eisegesis. You're putting into it that this is an age of accountability. Can you please post a you know, a chapter and verse where it actually talks about an age of accountability. And he was like, I just did J- read it. It's like, uh, okay. And, and somebody else said 20 years old, we're talking about an age of accountability here. People, if, if, if you're going to show that a, uh, that the Bible teaches an age of accountability, you can't just post, uh, where it talks about a person's age, like being 12 or 13 or being 20 years old. Yes. The Bible does talk about people being a certain amount of years old. It says nothing about an age of accountability. And one person was like, so you're going to hold a toddler accountable for their actions? And I was like, okay. First of all, have you ever spanked a child or gotten a child in trouble who was under the age of 12 for something that they did? Of course. Why? Because you hold them accountable. The answer is yes. People are held accountable under the age of 12 or 13. So anyway, the arguments were uh, shoddy at best from those who were attempting to uphold age of accountability. With that said, Brandon Von Bo wrote in and said this. He says, do you believe that all things are determined by God, the good and evil that happens? This is what Calvin held to, was it not? Okay. Now, the response that I gave was a, um, I, I posted this and then for some reason it was deleted and I don't know why. Um. The response that I gave is chapter three from the 1689 Baptist Confession. Uh, and I agree with this wholeheartedly. You can go online. Founders actually, Founders Ministry actually uh, took the 1689, put it into modern day language. Now, I do not agree with all of the 1689 Baptist Confession. That's not what I'm trying to say. I do agree with chapter three or article three of the 1689 Baptist Confession. This is what it says. It says, from all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly, uh, by perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet, God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing accomplishing his decree. So, let me break that down for those who might not have caught it. God is not the author of sin. God did not predestine people to sin. How that works, that is a great question. So, uh, some might uh, believe that this is Molinism, 
And in some ways, uh, I think that could possibly be argued, but not exactly, because God does decree uh, what is to happen in the world. Uh, Part two of Article three in the Baptist Confession says God knows everything that could happen uh, under any given conditions. However, his decree of anything is not based on foreseeing it in the future or foreseeing that it would occur under such conditions. And then finally, uh, part three of Article 3 says, By God's decree and for the demonstration of his glory, some human beings and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Others are left to live in their sin, leading to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. All of this to say, I think that God does predestine uh, the, uh, the, the elect, and he does not call those who are not elect. And I think that this was the main thrust of the, uh, the reformers in their understanding of predestination. I think that it is a little bit newer Calvinism and newer doctrines of grace to say that every single thing, for instance, I think, uh, was it Piper or Sprawl said that if there's one speck of dust that is, uh, that is not preordained by God, uh, then all is lost. I think that that is not exactly where the reformers were at. I could be wrong, and I'm sure that if I am wrong, uh, it will be shown in the chat room and or by people emailing me. But ultimately, I think that the main idea of predestination, when the reformers talk about it, has to do with salvation. That is, unto salvation. And we see matched with Matched with depravity. In other right. words, that... that because what's the, the other option is that there's some, that, you know, there's good out there, Caleb. There's good people. They're morally good. You know, I mean, there's this, other, what else is there? There's either depravity or there is no original sin. You know, people, people are good generally. And, you know, and that's what we're taking. We're taking which of these thought, which, which of these sets of presuppositions match the scriptures right the one that tells me that says by yeshua's death that uh we have been transferred from darkness into light that we were dead in our sin and trespasses or oh no everybody there's goodness and everybody most people are good morally and um, they just need to be they just need to learn about God so that they can believe correctly. Yeah. Matt says in the chat room, he says, what does fellowship with one who sinned mean? Didn't God still talk to Adam and Eve? Yeah, that's not what it means to fellowship. It means that he is a co-author and or participates in their sin. In other words, that he predestined them to sin. And pretending that the gravity of the sin is nothing. Right. Like pretending that it's not consequential. What this shows, though, is that the reformers did think to themselves about the idea that what did God predestine sin? And their answer is no. God works around man's sin and orders the world accordingly. So, uh, and I, I think I'm going to be confu- can, uh, I'm, go- I'm going to be accused of Molinism at this point. Um, I, I don't know how I. I'm not. I'm going to be the first person who tells you I don't know how it works. I don't know how God can predestine. Uh, things and yet not predestined sin. Yeah. Truth time. All right. Uh, let's keep going. We have more to talk about. Brandon, different Brandon, I believe, writes in, and this is going to be for Rob. 
Hi, I had oh, a question cool. concerning the sons of God found in Genesis 6. The term sons of God is used three, three more times in the Old Testament in addition to uh, Genesis 6. This is, a, uh, I, this is talking about the Nephilim, I think, specifically. In all cases, it denotes angelic beings. Let's see these occurrences all from the book of Job. And I think that they're all from the, the other occurrences outside of Genesis 6 are all from Job. I think that that's actually important. Let's go. Uh, Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Uh, Job 2.1 says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself. Uh, and then finally in Job 38.7, speaking about the earth, To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So, uh, then this is Brandon's conclusion. Is it safe to say then that the sons of God is most definitely referring to angelic beings in Genesis 6? Which leads to the question, how are angels able to reproduce with humans? And we're going to let uh, Rob take this because Rob's uh, headspace is very much in this place right now and go that, that's a great question uh let's leave it at that next no. <laughs> um so it's true yeah you can look up in hebrew b'nai ha'elohim occurs there in genesis 6 and in job beginning to job and then b'nai elohim without the definite article i think it's job 38 i think was that last one um and so the question is what what is this referring to and um, I think my personal take is that it, it depends upon context. That uh, uh, just like the word Elohim, Moses is called Elohim by God. He says, you will be to Pharaoh, Elo, you'll be Elohim. But Moses elsewhere is called Ish Ha Elohim, man of God. But we don't imagine that to mean that Moses was an angelic being. Right. So it 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 gets it, it gets into the word Ben, <laughs> Caleb's son's Ben, <laughs> but the word Ben, the noun, well, it's Ben Benjamin, of course, but Ben means all sorts of things. Here's another example in Job thirty-eight. It if you go down a little bit further past Ben Elohim, it talks about um, the constellations, and it's like the bear and her satellites or something, and it's her it's Banav or Beneha, her sons. It's talking about stars. So when it talks about the bear and her and her cubs, or her her sons, it's poetry. It's poetry talking about stars. Uh, so to take Job thirty eight and say this must be the same as Job one and two, or this must be the same as Genesis six, is uh, that's running too quickly, you know. Without that's kind of bull of bull in the china shop in it. You got to look at at the the idiom of sonship. Um, you have to look at the the point of the genealogies in Genesis five is to differentiate those like uh, Enoch, Hithalech Lifane Elohim, or I think it is he walked with Elohim. Noah walked with Elohim, uh, and the sons of Seth. I I take the sons of Seth are the sons of Elohim, as opposed to the sons of Cain. 
and so that's that's my reading of Genesis six, and that's not my idea. That's not a new idea. That idea, this this controversy concerning how to read Genesis six goes all the way back to the Second Temple period before Yeshua's time, and the groups that believed it was. Uh, uh, like angelic beings, that was the group that split off and went to Qumran. Those are the groups that believed in the in this uh, the Enoch revelations, which is contrary to the Torah of Moses, as we know. Uh, the Book of Jubilees, which modifies the Book of uh, Early Stories of Enoch. Now, this is to be differentiated from the quotation of a, a pr- prophecy of Enoch, which we find in the Book of Jude. Uh, just because Jude cites a prophecy of Enoch doesn't mean he's endorsing what later we call the book of Enoch. So that's the important differentiation. But yeah, Lee says seems to disagree with Peter and Jude. No, no, not at all. No, no. Uh, if you read, if you read Jude and second Peter, I think it's second Peter. Um, and, and you can insist, oh, this is this is they're quoting the Book of Enoch. You have to you have to demonstrate that, and that means you have to go and look at the language. I, I don't think that's true for a minute. I don't think Jude is citing the Book of Enoch. As a matter of fact, my my translation of Jude, I've recently did a translation of Jude for our local, you know, Shabbat meeting group, and you know, maybe by the end of the summer, I'll have my little Jude handbook done, and you can look at that. And I go through the quotes that we have from this citation of Enoch and show that it's clearly oral tradition. Jude is not quoting from a book called that he knows called Enoch. He, Jude does, would not endorse all the other stuff. Uh, he couldn't, because he would have to say the Son of Man is, is Enoch. He would have to say that his brother, Yeshua, is Enoch, <laughs> ultimately, and he's not going to say that. Uh, but aside from that, the sons of God, the teaching that Genesis 6 is talking about angels mating with humans is an idea that emerges in the Greek, in the Hellenistic era, where Jews are trying to, some Jews, not all, are retelling their stories to try to compete with, with Greek stories, as well as Mesopotamian uh, astronomy and how, the, how they had received knowledge from Mesopotamia about the stars, um, how calend- calendars. That's why, the, that's why the Jubilees and Enoch have, and Qumran have a completely different calendar than the Torah, because they, were, they took Mesopotamian knowledge but they didn't want to attribute it to the Mesopotamian priests. So what they did is they created stories of fallen angels, which do all the bad things that the Mesopotamian priests did. And then they attribute the, the knowledge they took from Babylon, the calendars, the obser- observation of the stars, and attribute it to revelation, Jewish revelation, rather than cultural appropriation. And this is, there's a lot of research been done on this. It's, it's uh, going to be a big challenge to Dr. Heiser and other like that when, when it all gets put out, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to contextualize how some Jewish groups in the Hellenistic era took Mesopotamian knowledge and Greek myth and tried to retell the story of, of the Bible and how, where sin, the origins of sin and where calendars and uh, talking about the stars and things like that come into play, and to dress it as 
revelation, direct revelation from heavenly beings. And then the scribes that recorded those stories set themselves up as the mediators of this true knowledge that you had to go to them to get the knowledge. And it was, the whole thing is a distraction from the Torah of Moses. So uh, that's, there's a whole bunch here, uh, but, but the, just the simple dispute back to Genesis six, the, the, uh, how do you read the sons of God in Genesis six, basically all the way back into the Hellenistic era, you have a split between, are they talking about humans or are they talking about some sort of angelic beings? The people that thought they were angelic beings ultimately became, they flashed, they were a flash in the pan and they hung out at Qumran and they disappeared. And then they kind of revived later on. But the, but the rabbinic tradition uh, strongly you know, never, never took that position, never took that it was angelic beings, took that these are human judges. These are people that should have known better. They were of the line of, of Seth. Okay. We got a lot going on in the chat room. First of all, uh, love is bigger, gave us a super chat and referenced this clip. Weights and measures. (laughs) Okay. So thank you very much for your, (laughs) thank you very much for the super chat. We do appreciate it. You've been blessed. Uh, Jeff in the chat room says, has Rob offered his thoughts on Heiser's divine counsel hypothesis? Uh, Someone else says, um, is your commentary, I think on Jude is what they're referencing going to be for sale. I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think we'll have that before the, um, what's the conference Caleb we're doing for the, no, before that one, even one. No, sorry. The one that your dad and I will be. Oh, the. Um, if that happens. The Asian Pacific Messianic. Yeah. Conference. My hope is to have it ready before that because I want to talk about it. So in two, by the end of August, I think it'll just, it'll be a handbook on Jude. So that'll Jude, be available. And yeah, then. Jude um, is awesome. I love the. I, I, I'm actually thinking about preaching yeah. through Jude after I do Philemon. Um, Sweet. And then. Read my, read my handbook first. I will. Uh, Jeff, uh, so Jeff has, he offered his, uh, thoughts on Heiser's divine counsel hypothesis. Oh yeah. The, oh, so, uh, yeah. Dr. Heiser, that's where he got his doctorate. I think it was uh university of. Wisconsin no, but have you offered your, the question is, have you offered your thoughts on Heiser's divine counsel? Yeah, hypothesis? I don't, I, I don't buy it. Yeah, I don't buy it. I, I think what he's doing, he, what Heiser did, I've read his dissertation, um, and Heiser promotes something he calls monolatry. He says, ancient Israelites believed in a multitude of gods, but they only worshiped one. And the idea was that every nation had their own God, which is which is right off the bat is wrong, because if he says he's going to judge the gods of Egypt, that means Egypt has more than one God right there. And the, uh, so with a crayon, you can kind of make his theory work, but... When, when you when you start to look at specific case after case after case, it's, it doesn't work. It's the attempt to read the Bible through the lens of the text, such as the Canaanite literature, the Ugaritic, you know, the Baal stories and things like that. And then looking at passages like Psalm 81 um, and other other passages, Deuteronomy 32, from a lens that's, that is kind of somewhat sensational. Oh, let me tell you the secret. You know, they changed this text. They changed it because they were embarrassed. 
you know, they didn't, they, it really said B'nai Elohim in Deuteronomy 32, but the Jewish scribes of the temple were embarrassed by their own scripture. So they changed it to B'nai Israel. I mean, the, all sorts of stuff you have to, you have to start making up stuff, you know, uh, to try to explain when in fact it's the Greek translators that were the ones that are demonstrably again and again, modifying the Torah so that it was, um, it could be, it could appeal to Jews who lived in Alexandria who were immersed in Greek culture and they didn't want to offend their their Greek neighbors. So they modified the their translation of the Torah into Greek by covering up certain things that are in the Hebrew. And one of the things they do is they import the the word angels into Deuteronomy thirty two and thirty three, where there is no angels uh, in the Hebrew text. Um, uh, and, and there's numerous other things like that, because it, in Alexandria, sons of God in the early second, in the Hellenistic era, um, often referred to humans, human rulers, like, you know, the Caesars, like, for example, you know, the, they, they consider themselves sons of God. And so that was a problematic term also. So that now what, now we can't, we don't want people to read Genesis six and think of these people, so we have to modify it. So the modifications of the scriptures in ancient translations is due to the recipient or the target language's social historical context and the, the problems they were they had negotiating their identity in diaspora. It's not, it's not, it's not like you have a bunch of Jewish scribes in the temple copying from generation to generation in text in Hebrew. And they're like, at some point they're like, Oh man, we got to change our text. Cause I'm more embarrassed that that's you just don't have that. Um, so there's a lot that goes into this. You have to, you know, you have to have some competency in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek history, but I, I, uh, I don't buy the Heiser's uh, theories or hypothesis for a minute. I think he's, he's muddling up, uh, sources. He's muddling sources. And I think, sadly, um, I mean, his dissertation was for a secular thing, and, and they're all about source criticism. The Torah is not really written by Moses. The Torah is a layers of different sources put together. Um, the Psalms are the same way. So all of a sudden, you, you the Bible now is just an ancient Near Eastern text. And what we do is we read other equally ancient Near Eastern texts, Egyptian texts, Mesopotamian texts, Hittite, right, uh, Canaanite, and we read them all together, and we try to learn about the ancient Near Eastern world as a whole. And what that does now, the Bible's no longer the Holy Bible. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Is all is is it's a degrading of the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so the I, I don't buy the monolatry that that the prophetical the prophetic tradition from the Torah and then all the prophets all the way up to John the Baptist were monotheist. This is like totally against Heiser. They were monotheists. They believed that there was one true God, that man was made in that image of, of Elohim. So when you read Genesis one, man look, and we're reading locally on, on Shabbat, so we're reading through James and James makes the same point. You look into the Torah and you learn what kind of man you are. And he says, you, man is made in God's image. So you learn about, man learns about who he is looking to the Torah as the same time he learns about who Elohim is. There's never a sense in any of the prophets that there are multitudes of Elohim and they just need to choose the right one. 
That's it's a narrow path. Now, some I would agree. I would modify Heiser's statement of monolatry. I would say some Israelites, obviously, we know this from archaeology. Some Israelites believed in other gods. We know that from we know we don't even need to go to archaeology. We know that from the prophets themselves, because the, one of the main things is they're saying, repent, <laughs> repent, destroy the high places, right? Turn back to the true God, to the one true God. That's the claim. So that the narrow line of faith it, throughout the, you know, the Torah and the prophets is that of monotheism. That's it, not monolatry. Michael in the chat room asks this question. He says, my first time hearing a comprehensive explanation that Genesis 6 refers to fallen angels was Chuck Missler. Do you think his conclusion is is reached similar to Heiser's? Oh, yeah. I, as a matter of fact, I would venture to suggest that Heiser was influenced by Missler. I think my, my gut feeling, and I don't know this for a fact, but my gut, my gut feeling is that Heiser listened to to Missler and then went and it encouraged, you know, it spurred him to go and study and learn. Um, and I, and another suspicion on that is because I think Missler back, this is way back in the like eighties and nineties. I think Missler cited, is it Zachariah Sitchin, the guy who talked about the ancient Sumerians and, and ancient uh, aliens and stuff like that. And I remember in one of Heiser's early websites, like way before, like this is way back before he took off with all these books, he interacted with the Zachariah Sitchin material of these. Uh, uh, so yeah, I, I, Missler is another problem. Missler is an example of someone who never learned Hebrew. You could tell because he the, he would say Benai, the Benai Elohim, and you could tell his Hebrew was he was just doing his best to read English transliterations. Um, yeah, so yeah, you know, people should stay in their lanes, you know, and but not only that, not only, it's it's more than that, it's more than that. We have, we have a crucial issue with building on rock versus building on sand. And we got to take Yeshua's words absolutely ser- seriously. He says, whoever hears my words and does them is a wise man building on rock. When James says a man looks into the Torah to see what kind of man he is, right? Or when, the, when Paul says the Torah is holy and just, right? That's, that is is saying this is revealed. Yes, it's in human language. Yes, it's in human language, but it's the revealed thought, words and thoughts of God. And even, even having the word of God is insufficient. We have to have the Ruach. That, this is 2 Corinthians 3. It says they, to this day they read it, but there's a veil over their heart. That's the issue then. So what's wrong with the human heart? Why, why is it that... People misread the scriptures over and over and over again. Why does that happen? And that's that we, we got to, these are the deepest theological issues. Enoch is not scripture. Enoch is not scripture. If you're reading Enoch or Jubilees or whatever, and you think you're getting insight into the nature of the creator of the universe, you're, you're sadly mistaken. You've been misguided. You've been misguided. And this is this goes to the groups that want to add those. You know, remember Caleb? There's the guy, the Sefer Bible or whatever. You know, adding all these books. Yeah, those books that were stolen from you. This is the this is the language of the serpent. 
The language of the serpent is to instill doubt in you so that you don't you so that you actually stop believing what God has revealed and you start following after this this uh sensationalist claim and you start calling wisdom what in fact is not wisdom you start calling good what is in fact not good and now you're 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 on a path to destruction because I think that view is headed for a deep mischief Isaiah Isaiah 5 woe to those who call good evil and evil good and light dark and dark dark light we got to we we have to be careful readers and re-readers and study meditators on the word of God, which means, which means it's set apart. It's not just, it's not ancient Near Eastern literature. It is from the ancient Near East. It is in an ancient Near Eastern language and languages, but there's, there's a border. There's a circle. You have to, if you do not have a theology of canon, if, if you don't have a sense of edges of the canon of what is tr- what is reliable, what can I build on, then you, you have no way to know. You have no, then there's, it's that you're in a completely relative truth kind of situation. Lee, and that's scary because you're just going to blow with the wind. You'll Lee, just blow with the Lee specifically wants you to know that he does not read the book of Enoch. <laughs> He says, Rob's going to be my teacher again next, next year. And I don't want him to think that. No, no, I don't think that for me. I'm, I'm speaking generally. I, I'm speaking from my own experience. Right. Cause I remember when I, I, I mean, back in the, in the early nineties, I, I was listening to Missler and it was like, man, I need to read, you know, I need to learn about this other stuff. And what I realized is that there's nothing wrong with reading the book of Enoch. There's nothing wrong with reading Jubilees, but understand make sure that you begin knowing that it's not canon. This is not scripture. This is what other Jewish people were promoting. Not, not only that, we have to realize that the the textual transmission is such a big issue. We got to know to the best degree we can. When was, when was it written? Like people think that there was this thing called first Enoch and it was, there wasn't, it's like, it's not like first, second and first, second Corinthians, you know, first, second Enoch. They're, they're just called that. You know, what we had is different. Uh, the oldest fragments we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls are in Aramaic, and they're just highly fractional or fragmentary, barely even identifiable as, as part of something that later we call the Book of Enoch, which is only 500-year-old you know, ma- uh, manuscript in Ethiopic, which scholars say, yeah, the Ethiopic was translated from the Greek, the Greek from Hebrew, and probably the Hebrew from Aramaic. So that's like, I mean, there's so much loss of, of information there. Plus, you have editing and and, and anthologizing, all these things that are happening to create these things called the first Enoch. When in fact, we, you don't have a first Enoch. What you have, they call it the, the book of dream visions, for example, or astronom- uh, uh, astronomical Enoch or whatever they call it. And they're just these little traditions. And again, these were scribes that tried to control knowledge of, of, of the angels, of the angelic realm. They presented themselves to other Jews as we have information upon the, about angels that you're not getting from the Torah of Moses. And it has to do with heavenly revelation and the nature of time, the nature of the stars. 
But what they really did, they were really learned a bunch of stuff from the Babylonians and repackaged it as revelation. And, and so you have this whole, uh, you know, body of writing and legend that builds like a snowball rolling down a, a mountain, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So uh, Jeff makes a really good point. He says, tell Rob he needs bookshelves in the background. Otherwise, his claims uh, of scholarship are spurious. Um, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think that uh, one person. Go back and watch old Rob and Caleb shows right. where books are falling off the top of the. Somebody, somebody else says uh, that you have not given a good explanation of what Genesis 6 is actually talking about if it's not talking about angels. Um, do you want to get into that now? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I believe these are they're humans. They're it's the line of Seth. It's the line of Seth, and the daughters of the daughters of men are are from the line of Cain. And you had you Boom. have you have uh, that's that's you know. There's one other tradition. There's one other tradition that uh, one other interpretation is that they were, it's the divine right of kings. That in other words, they said in the ancient Near East, and there's some that that have evidence for this, that when a bride was going to get married, a local leader could come and, and, and be with her on her wedding night first. Yeah, we saw that in the movie Braveheart. Yeah, and they say that happened in the ancient Near East. Right. And so they say that, the, that B'nai Halohim, then the word Elohim is not, talking about God, but it's talking about like, um, like in the book of Jonah, where it says it was a mighty city and it says a city of Elohim, but Elohim, it doesn't mean it was a city of God. It means that it was a, it was this huge, huge city. So the idea of that they had power, that these were, uh, Kings that were in power. Uh, okay. Let's see here. Let's move. I, I think we should move on if we're going to get to Kabbalah at all. Should we, we just save this for another week? I don't even remember what we were. What's the Kabbalah conversation? Okay, about? hang on just a sec. Well, uh, Johnny says, I still think you guys should invite Mike on the show since you hosted Brant Petrie a while back. Uh, no, that's not going to happen. 100% not going to happen. Um, in fact, we don't invite people on this show anymore. Uh, that's pretty much, and uh, there are a couple of exceptions from time to time, um, but uh, yeah, if people want to respond to uh, any claims that we make, they're more than wel- welcome to do that. We read everything that people write uh, that's directed towards us. At least we have thus far. Um, we read all of our YouTube comments. We read our emails, and uh, if someone like Heiser would like to respond to anything that we've said, you're more than welcome to. We're small beans to him. Yeah, he doesn't care about us. He, we're not. <laughs> I mean, seriously, we're not on his radar at all, and I don't think we probably ever will be. There are other scholars that are doing. There are other scholars who are are much bigger and well known than we are who are already responding to Heiser, um, and so I don't think that uh, I, I think that Heiser, his last, I don't think we're on his radar. Anyway, okay, um, we don't have a whole lot of time. So we'll start getting into this. Uh, hi, Caleb. This is from my good friend, Stephen. Are any of the worldviews slash theologies contained within the Kabbalah rooted in the Torah or Tanakh at all? Okay, let's read that again so I can emphasize the right syllables. Are any of the worldviews slash theologies contained within the Kabbalah rooted in the Torah or Tanakh at all? That's number one question. Uh, and I think that the answer is... Oh, 
That's a great question. I think that the answer is when we talk about the Kabbalah in general, we have to realize that there's different uh, categories of Kabbalah. So, for instance, Luriana Kabbalah comes out in the 1200s, right around that time. But then, well, no, Luria lived in the 16th century. I'm sorry, the, the, the Luriana, Zohar. Yeah, Luriana Kabbalah comes out in the 16th, 17th century, uh, and this is how you get Hasidic Judaism. Sorry, I'm mixing up my time, uh, my time frame. And then the Zohar and all that comes out in the 1200s. Um, and so you have, and, but even before that you have Jewish Gnosticism of the first century. We see this in the, in the book of Acts, right? Uh, Simon, the magician seems to, it says that he's a Jewish magician. Um, and so what is this? And then obviously Colossians response to the Colossian heresy where it talks about the veneration of angels and, and things like that. Or I know that there's different views on that, not necessarily the veneration right, of the right, angels, right. but anyway, it talks about the well, worship the, of the angels. The core idea is this, is it's, I mean, pretty much now in the observant Jewish world, any Kabbalah is going to be Lurianic Kabbalah. Right. Because he's believed to be, basically he's a, so A, reincarnation, right? Like, so you have to believe in reincarnation. That means that uh, Isaac Luria, who lived in the f- mid 1500s, was a reincarnation of Shimon Bar Yochai, right? Um, and he told Chaim Vital, one of his disciples, that Vital was a reincarnation of Cain, right? So, so real strange stuff that what's called Gilgul Hanefesh, you know, uh, the, the recycling of the soul. And the, the idea is. I mean, there's the the tree of life is this series of emanations, which becomes the deity, basically, by which the deity creates the world. And then there is this need for repair. There's a need for repair, and Jews doing the commandments um, bring that repair that is needed for God. Uh, and and the, to the, the world, the the the. And the, if you don't do it all, if you don't do all the six thirteen in one lifetime, you come back, right? And finish. So the the answer that I ultimately would give to the first question that Stephen writes in is it's, no, it's, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not at all rooted in any form of the Tanakh or the Torah. It's rooted in Jewish Gnosticism. It's rooted in Gnosticism. Um, and then Joseph in the, um, in the chat room says, is it possible that God can use this kind of doctrine to pull Jews back to Messiah, considering that it may have been a response to Christianity, i.e. Metatron, we simply replace him with Messiah. I think that God can use any means which he desires to bring people to Christ. However, with that said, I do not believe that uh, the use of Metatron is going to pull people back to Christ unless it is a, a direct miracle from God. And the reason why is because Metatron, the, the theology of Metatron says that Enoch is the one who is elevated to an angel and then elevated to a lesser yod heh right, right, right. not Yeshua. And so right. th- this, is a, this is paganism and it is... Uh, it is occultism, and it is straight from Satan. Honestly, it is it, this theology is from the dark side, and to think that we're—I mean—that would be like asking, uh, "Can God use Satanism to bring people to Christ?" The answer is God can use whatever He wants, but I highly doubt that going out and but preaching what, but Satanism is going to work. This, once born from above, they're going to reject. They're gonna they're gonna reject all exactly. that. Exactly. They're not gonna continue to promote it, thinking, "Oh, I'm just, I can just stay here and." Yeah. Yeah. Um, second question from Stephen: 
when Hasidics go to synagogue or shul, are they disconnected or compartmentalized? How do you how do they hear slash listen to the word of God and still hold on to such pagan beliefs that that the Torah completely slam dunks and prohibits? I think that this needs to be uh, thought of in all of Israel's history, from the very beginning of coming out of Israel. What does Israel do? They build a golden calf while while Moses is up on the on the mountain. He comes down and Israel continues continues. Even though they have the Torah, right. they continue to follow after false gods. They get right. Here, here's 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 two. Here's a footnote on that. Back to the monolatry idea. Here's the problem. The problem with the scriptures also are people calling things God that aren't God. Right. So how can how can you ever trust a human that's calling something a God? They said, "Here is Yod Hey who brought you out of Egypt," and and they're bound before a calf. Jeroboam does the same thing. These are the Elohim who brought you out of Egypt, and he's made up these calves. Okay. The problem throughout the Bible is human hearts are deceitful and dark, and they call things gods, which are in fact not gods. Right. And and that's that is again back to the monotheism of the prophetic tradition is calling people back. Look, repent of your dead works. You're you're worshiping the works of your hands. Isaiah 44, he says, the, it doesn't even occur to the guy to think I'm bound before a block of wood. Right. Isaiah mocks it. Isaiah says the guy doesn't even, he's so dense that he's actually doesn't realize, oh, he has, it has eyes, but it doesn't see. It has ears, but it doesn't hear. It has a mouth, but it doesn't speak. Well, this, this I mean, I, my son and I were reading, I had my son read uh, the, the uh, bronze serpent the other day in the Torah. Why? Because it, what is what does God say? Make the bronze serpent and have people look at it, and then they will be uh, relieved of the of the of the snakes. So this is a good thing that God gives them. What do they end up doing with it? Worshiping they wor- it. They worship. They burn incense to it. Yeah, and yeah. and all of a sudden this thing becomes an idol. God gives something for good, and it becomes an idol. The fact is, is that that's Israel- the problem with human heart, right? Exactly. There. Not not that not that there's a whole bunch of gods, and you just got to learn Choose to pick the right, the right one. one. Right. And, and, that's that's also putting it on your on the cleverness of human reasoning that oh you know sure there's all these gods and I I just know that I picked the right one why how do you know oh because I'm smart and I researched it no no and, and but but the point is is that if we continue to look at Israel's history guess what happens they continue and, and people think that for some reason since Israel is a nation now with a prime minister and a army and all this kind of stuff that that all of a sudden they're following after God. I hate to tell you all this. Now, this does not mean that that Israel is not God's chosen people. They are. But just as Israel followed after the false gods in, in the desert, just as they followed after the false gods when they came into the land, just as they rejected Christ in the first century, and just as they have continued to reject Christ and follow after false gods, the current nation of Israel is following after false gods. And I, I would say that a, a Jew in the land, a, a Jewish person who lives in Israel, who's from Israel, who's not a believer, doesn't have any advantage over a Jew who lives somewhere else in the world who's not a believer. Right. Both, there's no advantage for being, for, because we, we, like Caleb said, this is a secular state. Jews had already been in the land before the, the, the state of Israel was established. People, people keep saying that we need the bell. There it is. There it is but for the chat did, room. We did talk about if, it, and maybe, maybe this email or this particular question was uh, triggered by, or, or what do you call it, prompted from our discussion of Schneerson and how we we read a little bit of how they're 
how, like, how do they say you can pray to grave now? So, but if the person hadn't heard that, I would encourage them to go back and listen to that discussion. This is a, this is actually prompted from my two, uh, from my written, uh, uh, article, my 18 page article on Torah resource, oh. uh, Kabbalah and the Messianic believer. Um, and actually, uh, my good friend Stephen goes on, he has a third question and then he has six follow-up questions after that. We're going to save all of that for next week. And, uh, we're going to, we're going to do a number two here, uh, next week. And then actually, uh, I, my family's going on vacation the week after that. So, uh, next week we'll talk more about Kabbalah and we'll talk about, um, how all of these things work together. I think that the conversation on Heiser's, uh, view and some of the other, uh, theologies of Genesis six and whatnot were well needed. And so, uh, yeah, you're going to have to come back next week for even more on Kabbalah. Um, we are very appreciative to everyone who helps support this show. If you can't or don't want to support this show uh, through monetary means, that's totally fine. You can also support this show by subscribing if you're not a subscriber. If you already are a subscriber and you still want to help support this show, give us a thumbs up on this video. I know it sounds weird, but it actually helps. YouTube actually likes it when people thumbs up videos. Go figure. So, Caleb and I get more checks for a million dollars. Yes, exactly. Yes, that. that's exactly what we're, we're hoping for. Uh, be a part of the conversation, 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. You can also send us emails, and I would encourage you to do so about any of the topics that we have um, we have brought up today. Seahag at TorahResource.com. It's Seahag at TorahResource.com. And, uh, yeah, we hope that this conversation... Ooh, has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters.